0: We're in First Kings. Uh, I've been wanting to get into this study for a, a number of weeks, and I've been preparing, going through all the different sorts of things to study out the scriptures to see uh, what the what these books have to show us uh, about salvation, about Jesus, about all those things that we come to know and love in the gospel, uh, and even yes, even these books uh, have to do with that. That's what I hope to bring out to you uh, through the series of messages that we will go through in these books. is to show you that yes. Even here, these passages of Scripture have a point, have a purpose to show us something about Jesus, our Savior. Uh, A few weeks ago, I made mention of a particularly modern movement. I, I say modern kind of loosely. It's a movement that has gained some traction recently, I would say, to, quote, unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. Uh, this is particularly evident in one particular pastor who I will leave unnamed, an even prominent evangelical pastor, perhaps, uh, who actually said from his pulpit that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. Uh, precisely because, uh, I don't know, perhaps it's too violent, it's, it's too old, it's too obscure, it has too many weird things, it has it has too uh, in- inconsistent a view of who God is because he's blessing people and then he's allowing people to be killed and murdered and executed as we will see here in even these two chapters. Uh, it, it creates this uh, story, it has all these stories that are filled with things that don't seem to apply. That don't seem to jive with quote 2021 Christianity. And I would say truthfully that in one sense that's true. (laughs) There's lots of weird stories in the Old Testament. (laughs) There's lots of passages that will jump off the page. And it will just feel like how does this coalesce with modern faith. (laughs) With 2021 Christianity so to speak. There's absurd stories. But I think in a truer sense. uh, uh, Every story is in this old testament specifically but the whole bible generally has a purpose it has a single point it has a single goal and that is to show you your desperate need of a savior that's what the whole bible's about that's what the whole 66 books they show us they reveal a savior they reveal Jesus the messiah That's why every narrative exists. Yes, even the narratives that we are going to get into in 1st and 2nd Kings. Just some background. Some history perhaps on these two historical books. Yes, 1st and 2nd Kings are very much a part of the Old Testament segment of books that are commonly known as history books. Therefore, they have lots of details, they have lots of dates, they have lots of names, and uh, it, it, at first these books can feel daunting. They can feel very sort of scary, especially if you were one who didn't like history in school. <laughs> Let me just say, buckle up, because there's lots of history. <laughs> uh, I can't, we can't really skirt around that. There's lots of history that's going to happen over the course of these next few weeks as we examine these books. Because 1st and 2nd Kings cover roughly 400 years of biblical history. Stories which uh, relay all sorts of uh, tense narratives filled with assassinations and betrayals and wars and family scandals and political scandals. All types of stories like that. They tell of Israel's decline. They tell of Israel's sort of disintegration from the peak of world powers to, as we find them at the end, uh, sort of leading into exile. They detail that sadness, that, that, that sad central premise that man is deeply depraved. And they are books that tell that story of how Israel got to where they were, which was in the midst of Babylonian exile and captivity. 1st and 2nd Kings are part of a larger group of history books. We have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Chronicles and Kings, they overlap in many areas. 1st and 2nd Kings are very much uh, sort of continuations of the books of Samuel. And they are telling this particular story. They were written to this audience. Audience of people of Israel who were in exile. Experiencing days of just untold sadness and sorrow and strain and stress. And these books exist to sort of explain how. How they got to this point. What led to this eventual outcome. Why they had gone from prosperity to now being sort of defeated. Why they were the way they were. That's what these books tell us. They tell us that story, and of course they are historical, as we noted, they are part of the the segment of Old Testament history books, but they are not primarily historical. And what I mean by that is, is that they are not composed of a comprehensive view of Israelite history. Actually, if you examine it out, they are actually sort of segmented parts of history. As if the historian who is compiling these books together sort of picked and chose which stories he wanted to include to lead his audience to a particular point. And that's what you have to see as you examine these books is that they are not comprehensive. They are actually very specific. He's specific in the story that he's trying to tell. He wants them to come to a certain conclusion. He could have been more exhaustive, if you can imagine, he covers 400 years of history, but he could have been more detailed. He could have been more sort of uh, meticulous about what he's covering and including. There are portions of Israelites, of Israel's history that aren't covered if we read these books from, book, from, from uh, the title page to the end of them. And what that means is, not that we can't trust what we have, but what we have is just that much more significant what you have in front of you is significant because as we know from the New Testament these are holy spirit inspired versions of what happened to Israel that God breathed out and the words were, came to men who wrote under the inspiration of the holy spirit and that these books are addressing specific theological issues yes in their day but I would say even to in our day as well they're given to us to make a particular point. And I would say summarize it very basically. Which is distrust in God leads to disaster. Distrust in God leads to ruin. It leads to something that is fatal. For yes an entire nation. But yes for individuals too. It leads to ruin. It leads to devastation. You see here in these, these books especially. The disintegration of God's people's faith. So we can say this to summarize it. This is what happens when Jesus is not king. This is what is going to occur when Jesus is not the only sovereign. Yes of your nation. Yes of your heart and life as well. Such is what happens throughout the course of these books. As we have this revolving door. Of kings on the thrones of Israel and on the thrones of Judah. They shine a bright beaming spotlight on the absence of the king of kings. On the absence of one who would sit on the throne. And it shows us our desperation, our dire need for his coming. And I think this is no more evident here in this first story that we have. What I hope to do as we go through this series is to cover stories. Uh, Perhaps we'll read every single particular verse. Perhaps not. This morning we're covering 99 verses. (laughs) So just, I'm not going to read all of them. (laughs) We're covering 99 verses. We're covering chapters 1 and 2. Because they tell one sweeping narrative. Particularly the narrative of how Solomon's kingdom was established. That was the end of chapter 2 verse 46. So the kingdom was established in Solomon's hand. That summarizes the events of the first two chapters. They lay this groundwork as Solomon is taking the place of King David's uh, sort of rule rule and reign as the king of Israel. And the opening words of chapter 1 give us a sense of the frightful state of affairs in which Israel has now found herself. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 1. Now King David was old. And advanced in age, although they covered him with bedclothes, he could not get warm. Here we see that now at this point, the prophet Samuel, he has already passed on. He is dead. He has uh, gone the way of his fathers, and now King David himself is dying. He's laying on a bed and he is sick, he is ill, he, is can, he cannot get warm it says, he is very sick to the point of dying and such is not just specifically for David but it's meant to show us sort of the, the fractured state that Israel is now finding herself in. The Israelite ideal himself is dying. David was the epitome of Israelite hope and transcendence and power and might. He was the king that God had chosen. And through him a promise had come that an eternal throne was going to be established. It's the covenant from 2 Samuel 7. But now he's old. Very near death. He's weak. He is dying and such is what his servants come to see. They see him dying and so they bring in a nurse. Verse 2, so his servants said to him, let us search for a young virgin for my lord the king. She is to attend to the king and be his caregiver. She is to lie by her side so that my lord the king will get warm. They searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel. And they found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was of unsurpassed beauty and she became the king's caregiver, his nurse. She attended him but he was not intimate with her. Here we see they're providing for him in his illness. They are making a way for him to be cared for in his dying days. And we have that sort of as the background of the state of things in Israel. David is dying. And one of his sons, Adonijah, verse 5, he takes this moment and he sees it as an opportunity to sort of game for the throne. To sort of jockey to find his place as king. Notice verse 5. Adonijah, son of Haggith, kept exalting himself saying, I will be king. He prepared chariots, cavalry, and 50 men to run ahead of him. But his father had never once infuriated him by asking, why did you do that? In addition, he was quite handsome. And was born after Absalom. So we have a couple of details that are worth noting. Adonijah. He's the younger brother of Absalom. Which as we know Absalom had already done what Adonijah here is going to do himself. He's going to game for the throne while the king is still sitting on it. We know that from Second Samuel chapters 15 through 18. That he himself Absalom tried to make a play for the throne. And here his younger brother Adonijah is going to do the same exact thing. He sees his dad's weakness, his his frailty as an opportunity for him to gain some power, to gain some prestige and some leverage. So he starts making alliances. He starts calling on specific people and saying, uh, this is what I hope to do. This is what I'm gaming to do. Look at verse 6 or verse 7. He conspired, it says, with Joab, son of Zariah, and with the priest Abiathar. They supported Adonijah, but the priest Zadok, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the prophet Nathan Shimei, Rai, and David's royal guards did not side with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and goats and cattle and fattened calf, fattened fattened cattle near the stone of Zoheleth, which is next to Enrogel. He invited all his royal brothers and all the men of Judah, the servants of the king, But he did not invite the prophet Nathan, Benaiah, the royal guard, or his brother Solomon. So you can already see here the setting up of teams. The setting up of two sides. Which obviously means when there's sides that happen, friction is bound to result. Something bad is going to come about when sides are taken up. This was the rumblings of another rebellion. Again, much like Absalom's. And I think without question... That this is a result of, a, of David's sin with Bathsheba. If you remember from 2 Samuel chapter 12. And when he went in the aftermath of that horrible event of David uh, sort of committing this sin. And then even making it worse by covering it up. By murdering Bathsheba's husband. All of those horrid events that happened in the middle of 2 Samuel. And the prophet there tells him that this, this violence, it will never leave your family. It will never leave your throne. And here we have it sort of coming to fruition. Here as one of his other sons is making a play for David's seat. So we have the stakes now. David's sick. He's old. He's dying. Solomon is the one who is said to be the coming king. And now Adonijah is setting himself up as the ruler of Israel. He's seeing his dad's weakness as a way for him to sit on the throne. Nathan the prophet hears of this. Verse 11, then Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah son of Haggath has become king and our Lord David does not know it? He, does not, he is not seemingly aware It is believed that in his old age he had become sort of not able to bear with all the responsibilities of the kingship. So here Nathan and Bathsheba they meet, they have a conference so to speak. They meet together and they, 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 they meet and sort of arrange that they're going to inform David of what's going on. The king has to know what's happening. They have to know that his son is trying to take the throne. And of course it was rumored that if Adonijah were to take the throne that Solomon and Bathsheba, they would be executed. They, it was basically a death sentence for them. So Bathsheba, she goes in. She tells David all of these events. She tells them all about what's going to happen. And then Nathan comes in also to confirm her words. He basically repeats, if you read the verses, he he basically repeats almost word for word what Bathsheba says. He's confirming what's happening, he's emphasizing the stakes. Something is at stake. It's the kingship, it's the throne. You have these two sides. Conspiring for the same thing, for power. And here, after hearing these words, the aging King David is stirred to action. Notice verse 28. King David responded. He hears these words about his son trying to take the throne. Verse 28, and David responded by saying, Call in Bathsheba for me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king swore an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every difficulty. Just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel. Your son Solomon is to become king after me. And he is the one who is, who is to sit on my throne in my place. That is exactly what I will do this very day. See previously he had already uh, made sort of a somewhat verbal uh, sort of report. That yes Solomon would be king. And now he is going to make it official. He had already seen, as we noted, the awful consequences of a fractured kingdom. When Absalom made his rebellion and he tried to take away the throne. So now David is now securing this place of power for his son Solomon. he's doing it properly so to speak. So he arranges for all the the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan and Benaniah. The sort of the new captain of Israel's army. To come together and take Solomon down to a place called Gihon. And anoint him. Anoint him officially. Anoint him properly as the next and official ruler and king of Israel. Ananiah catches wind of this. He catches wind of what's going on as they go down there and anoint Solomon. Notice verse 41. Jump ahead. Adonijah and all the invited guests were who are were with him. So remember, they're partying. As we go back to verse 9, they have all of this elaborate feast. They're at this place called Enrogel, which is important in a minute. They're partying at this place and they're celebrating, I'm the king now. He's basically just celebrating the fact that he has claimed this throne for himself without sort of doing anything really, just other than saying it. (laughs) So now they're, they're there with him, all the invited guests, as it says, verse 41, who are with him, heard the noise as they finish eating. There's this noise happening, there's this celebration going on. He thinks it's for him. Notice again, verse 41, Joab heard the sound of the ram's horn and said, why is the town in such an uproar? He was still speaking when Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, suddenly arrived. And Adonijah said, come in, for you are an important man, and you must be bringing good news. (laughs) It's funny, you get the sense... That Adonijah believes that this guy is coming and he's bearing good news. Obviously this noise is for me. Obviously all of this celebration, the noise, the trumpets blasting, the horns blowing. It's for me because of course I'm king. I'm king now and the people are celebrating. I love the words of verse 43 because Jonathan says, Unfortunately not. (laughs) No. I don't have good news. Actually I bear bad tidings. Jonathan answered him, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And with Solomon the king has sent the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they have had him ride on the king's mule. The priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan have anointed him king and Gihon. They have gone up from there rejoicing. The town has been in an uproar. That's the noise you heard. Solomon has even taken his seat On the royal throne. What devastating news this is for Adonijah. He was celebrating the fact that he was now a self-proclaimed king. And he thought this noise was for him. But it's so interesting that David tells them to go down to Gihon for the anointing. Why do you think that is? Because it's roughly only one mile from where Adonijah was partying. That's why they heard the news. That's why they heard that sound. It wasn't by accident. David was making sure that yes, he knew about what was going on, without disrupting their party. <laughs> they hear this news, and it's devastating to them. It's devastating news, especially to Adonijah. <laughs> puts definitely puts a damper on the party. Look at verse forty-nine. Then all of Adonijah's guests got up, trembling, and went their separate ways. <laughs> no one feels like parting anymore. <laughs> No one feels like celebrating. They were celebrating Adonijah the king and now that's not true. Now it's King Solomon who is the rightful one to take this place. And they're trembling because they know it could mean their heads. They just involved themselves in a conspiracy to take the throne. Could mean, could spell their doom. So they run away, fleeing, going their separate ways. And ever the self concerned one, ever the self interested one, one who wanted to uphold self preservation, so to speak, Adonijah runs and look at verses 50 through 53, because he takes the hold of the horns of the altar. Listen, Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he got up and went to take hold of the horns of the altar. And it was reported to Solomon look, Adonijah fears King Solomon. And he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon first swear to me that he will not kill his servant with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he is a man of character, not a single hair of his will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he dies. So King Solomon sent for him, and they took him down from the altar. He came and paid homage to to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your home. Essentially, what happens is Adonijah runs to sort sort of like a safe zone. If you remember playing tag when you were young, it's sort of base. (laughs) Taking hold of the horns of the altar is almost like a parlay in the conflict. To where as long as he was holding on to that, no one could harm him. And he uses that as leverage and says, do not kill me. I will pay homage to you, King Solomon. So Solomon listens. He allows him to have his life. Quite remarkable when you consider the the conspiracy that he was just involved in. That he had just drum up with all of the people of Israel. With David's former captain Joab. With the former priest Abiathar. And all these people that he had brought along to uh, go along with this conspiracy. And he lets him live. And all seems well. Go to your home. But then we get to chapter 2. Here, as it says at the beginning, as the time approached for David to die, he ordered his son Solomon, as for me, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong and be a man. He goes on to say throughout the first 12 verses of chapter 2, sort of some parting words, parting words on his deathbed. Reminding Solomon to be cautious. Cautious of those that were around him that had taken up arms against him. But also to warn him of living contrary to God's covenant. Notice notice verse 3. Keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways. And to keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses. Moses. So that you will have success in everything you do, wherever you turn. He reminds him of the covenants. Be faithful in your walk. Don't walk contrary to it. And then he reminds him of those, as Pastor Nathan mentioned earlier, of those who had sort of taken up a conspiracy against him. Be cautious. Be careful. Such is how Solomon's kingdom would be established. Notice as it says that in verse 12. King David dies. He was buried in the city of David, it says in verse 10, verse 12. Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. And his kingship was firmly established. All of course was not well. Abby, or excuse me, Adonijah is up to his old ways. And verses 13 begins a new sort of segment, a new chapter in his sort of conspiracy to take the throne. Now Adonijah, son of Haggith, verse 13, came to Bathsheba, Saul's mother. She asked, do you come peacefully? Peacefully, he replied, and then asked, may I talk with you? Go ahead, she answered. You know the kingship was mine, he said. All Israel expected me to be king, but then the kingship was turned over to my brother, for the Lord gave it to him. So now I have just one request of you, don't turn me down. She said to him, go on. He replied, please speak to King Solomon since he won't turn you down. Let him give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied. I will speak to the king for you. It's interesting that Adonijah is still living in that fantasy world. (laughs) I was supposed to be king, and you know I really was, except for King David. He took the kingship out of me, out from under me like a rug. He pulled it out from under me and gave it to my younger brother Solomon. But you know, it really should have been mine. Still living in that lie that he had made up for himself. And here he comes with a seemingly innocent request. Give me Abishag as a wife. But you see, by taking one of the king's former concubines, it is believed that she became that based on the context of what happened. Abishab became part of David's concubines. As taking, uh, by taking her, Adonijah was attempting to take the throne himself again. So Bathsheba, though, brings this news before King Solomon. You don't have to imagine how he took that news. Look at verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So she sat down on his right, throne, on his right hand. Then she said, I have just one small request of you. Don't turn me down. Go ahead and ask, the king replied, for I won't turn you down. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to your brother Adonijah as a wife. King Solomon answered his mother, why are you requesting Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Since he is my elder brother, you might as well ask for the kingship for him. For the priest Abiathar and for Joab, Joab, son of Zariah. Then King Solomon took an oath by the Lord. May God punish me and do so severely if Adonijah has not made this request at the cost of his own life. And now, as the Lord lives, the one who has established me, seated me on the throne of my father David, and made me a dynasty as he promised, I swear Adonijah will be put to death today. He sees through what Adonijah is trying to do. He sees through it. It seems like an innocent request, but it's not. He's gaming for the throne again. And remember what he had promised. At the end of chapter 1, verse 52, that if there's any evil found in him, he has just written his death sentence. And here, that's essentially what happens. He's made another play for the throne. He's not living faithfully or judiciously. He's living selfishly, self-concernedly. Verse 25, then King Solomon dispatched Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who struck down Adonijah and he died. He lives up to his word. He forcefully claims this throne. And that's eventually what we will see throughout the rest of chapter 2. He's weeding out all of those who conspired against him. He takes out uh, Adonijah. He takes out Joab. He eventually kills Shimei. He banishes Abiathar. All of the players who were involved with the conspiracy against him and his father are eventually taken out in chapter 2. Banished or executed. It's a very harrowing scene. (laughs) As one by one he goes through. Almost like he has a list. A list of people who he was supposed to watch out for. And one by one he removes all of these threats. He removes them all. And it goes back to verse 46. So the kingdom was established in Solomon's hand. These are these events. There was this conspiracy and it was kind of squash. And then it rumbles back up again. And so then he takes everyone out. That word "establish" is mentioned four times in this chapter. Verse 12, verse 24, verses 45 and 46. Uh, sort of leading us to see how Solomon made this kingdom firm and secure in his hand. And it's interesting to note. That what would eventually be a reign of peace for the people of Israel. Mostly during Solomon's reign. It began with such bloodshed. Such acts of vengeance and and retribution. And it leads us to ask this question. What's the point? Where's where's Jesus in a story like this? In, In a narrative that is so fraught with so much unforgiving people. With such violence, with such uh, anger and bloodshed on their hearts. How does such an unforgiving story tell us about a savior who comes and forgives? Well, I thought of the same question. (laughs) And then I was struck by this phrase that's repeated throughout chapter 1. Look at verse 33 and see if you can notice what it is. Chapter 1 verse 33. David is giving these commands to Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah, how they are to anoint Solomon. The king said to them, verse 43, or excuse me, 33, Take my servants with you, have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. Jump to verse 38. Then the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, Beniah, son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, and the Pelethites went down, had Solomon ride on King David's mule, and took him to Gihon. And then look at verse 44. As Jonathan the messenger is here reporting what happened with Solomon, notice what he says. And with Solomon the king has sent the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, Beniah, son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and they have had him ride on the king's mule. There's that phrase that's repeated three times. That they had Solomon ride on the king's mule. This was, of course, a normal way in which kings were recognized by their people. For one to ride on one of the king's horses or mules, it was essentially to take his place on the throne. And here is a public way of showing everyone who is king is sanctioned by David. He's riding on the king's mule. He's coming before his people as the new exalted one, as the new one who was anointed as the king of Israel. What does that phrase bring to mind, though? Yeah. Hopefully, it brings to mind what we're going to be celebrating in three weeks from now Palm Sunday. When another king made his entry into the kingdom on a borrowed mule, King Jesus. No, I was struck by these verses. Look at, or you don't have to look, I'll just read them to you. John 12, verse 12 through 16. This is that moment in the Gospels when Jesus is making his triumphal entry. The next day, John 12 says, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. We have here this amazing contrast. Between two entries into the kingdom. The same kingdom, by the way. In, the same, in a very similar manner. Solomon secures the kingdom through violence. By swiftly killing all of his enemies. That's how he firmly, firmly establishes his kingdom. Jesus, he secures his kingdom through sacrifice. By taking the place of his enemies in death. By being killed on behalf of his enemies sake. Disruption follows Solomon's entrance into the kingdom. And yet when Jesus comes in deliverance follows him. It adds weight to what Jesus says in Matthew 12. That he is one who is greater than Solomon. He is in your midst. This truly is what we are to see here, I think. That Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the one whose throne is stronger and better than any and every other sovereign. He is an undying king who cannot be conquered even by death But because he conquers death. He's better than David. He's wiser than Solomon. He's a ruler and one whose reign will never see an end. He is the king of all kings. And he is the only one in whose hope we are to have hope. And even now he's ruling from his heavenly throne. This is so prevalent for me throughout these passages. That even as all of this... Confusion and chaos and disaster is ruining what Israel has in front of them. There is one who is on his throne and he hasn't left it. Our present disaster is no reason to believe that the throne of heaven is vacant. He still sits on it. As the one true king of all. This is our confident hope. And it's so confident it can be believed as though it were concrete. That Jesus has ascended at the rightful place as king of all kings. That's where he is right now. And the only way to live stably, to live securely, to live established in this present life is with Jesus as king of our hearts. See, as long as we try to rule and reign our little kingdoms... In our own way. To set ourselves up as sovereigns. To claim sort of the thrones of our lives. We will see nothing but ruin. And chaos. And destruction. And despair. And violence. Such is what we see here. Men ruling according to their own hearts. It's what we are seeing now in our present life. Men and women doing what is right in their own eyes. Through it all though, we see this Jesus, the one who would uh, sort of come and fulfill and make right all of these wrongs that we see. That he too would come and ride on that donkey into the kingdom as the true and better king of all kings. He's king of kings right now, but let's ask that question, is he king of your heart? Does he have sovereign rule over your heart and life? Or are you still trying to establish your kingdom by your own hand, through your own ways, through your manipulated ends? Here we see what Jesus would come and do. He would undo all of the retribution by bearing it upon himself. As the true and better king that not just Israel needed, but that the world needed. as the true and better sovereign. The one who spoke this world into existence came and rode on a mule and had his hands nailed to a cross of wood from a tree that he spoke into existence. <laughs> this is what the king of kings does. He comes down and puts himself into our world of ruin and disaster to deliver us out of it. This is Jesus, the King of all kings. Let us pray.